For the first time in the history of our regime, the decision, supported by all nations of the world, calls for transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems so as to achieve net zero by 2050. Okay. That's not nothing. 2050, huh? Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet. So on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Burden Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. I am Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Uh, We have got a lot to get to today, as usual, but frankly, we had so much incoming (laughs) uh, breaking news yesterday. Oh, yes. During uh, during the program, uh, and a guest, the great Mark Joseph Stern, that frankly, Desi Doyen, something had to give yesterday. Yes, it did. And sadly, as usual, it was our coverage of the climate crisis. Ah, but that's okay. The climate's still going to be there. Well, that's a nice way to look at it. Very optimistic and unusual for you. <laughs> uh, and so we had to uh, sort of toss the breaking news that was coming out of the UN's COP28 climate conference in Dubai. So since it was and frankly is important news that we would have covered yesterday but for everything else because it had just broken and and though you'll you'll cover it briefly des uh later this hour in our our latest green news report i do want to jump in right up front with a bit more detail on this so that it cannot get tossed aside (laughs) i appreciate that no matter what breaks over the next hour uh so we spent some time earlier this week reporting on the last minute overtime negotiations that were going on at COP28 in Dubai in the petro state of the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, as the nations of the world sought to strike an agreement uh, among all 200 of them that are party to the annual climate conference, uh, an agreement that they could all agree on. I think they have to agree like on every word. Every single word has to be adopted by consensus. Yes. So they battled over whether even to, 
incredibly enough, even to, to mention the phrase fossil fuels in their unanimous closing statement, much less whether they should call for them to be phased out or even phased down. Uh, even that was a, a, a battle, whether to say the phrase fossil fuels. Well, as AP reported overnight last night, nearly 200 countries agreed Wednesday to move away from planet warming fossil fuels. The first time they've made that crucial pledge in decades of U.N. climate talks. So that is good. Uh, AP goes on to say many, uh, however, warned the deal still had significant shortcomings. The agreement was approved without the floor fight that many feared and is actually stronger than a draft that had floated earlier in the week that angered several nations. And as we shared on Tuesday's program, I think it was angered, in fact, longtime climate catastrophe auger former Vice President Al Gore. But the final agreement didn't call for an outright phasing out of oil, gas, or coal, and it gives nations significant wiggle room in their, quote, transition away from those fossil fuels. They didn't say phase out. They didn't say phase down. They said transition. So that's good news, is yes. it not, Desi Doyen? Yes, that is good news, but of course that comes with caveats. Um, it's a mixed bag by all means. Uh, there's no other way to put it. But this transition away from fossil fuels, specifically in energy systems, not industry mm. systems, mm -hmm. like, for example, for steel, making steel or mm -hmm. concrete, for right. example. Those are not energy systems. Those are industrial applications. Right. So they're talking specifically about energy systems, which is, for the moment, the prime primary uh, emissions area that mm -hmm. we have to deal with, which is primarily fossil fuels. So, so power plants and so forth. Exactly. Right. So it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, uh, here is Simon Steele. He's the U.N. Climate Secretary lauding, mostly lauding, the final <laughs> agreement while arguing that nations of the world have much more work to do to avoid the very worst consequences of our quickly deepening climate crisis, as he described the agreement as a, quote, climate action lifeline, not a finish line. COP28 delivered some serious strides forward. Progress has been made. Tripling renewables and doubling energy efficiency, operationalizing the loss and damage fund and making an initial, an initial down payment, a framework for the global goal on adaptation. COP28 also needed to signal a hard stop to humanity's core climate problem, fossil fuels and their planet burning pollution. Whilst we didn't fully turn the page on the fossil fuel era in Dubai, this is clearly the beginning of the end. This agreement is an ambitious floor, not a ceiling. So the crucial years ahead must keep ramping up ambition and climate action. That's why we'll be getting on with the job of putting the Paris Agreement into full effect. We're rolling up our sleeves. We have a great deal of work still to be done. Yes, we do. A great <laughs> deal of work. And by the way, I should say, uh, it's, uh, it's 
somewhat out of context there when he says this is the beginning of the end. I think he's not saying the beginning of the end of the world. Hell no. He is talking about the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel industry. I mean, that is what this declaration effectively puts down for everybody, investors, business, policymakers, governments. This is where the world has agreed to go. And that's, you know, that's it. It's all over pretty much. But the shouting. Well, and there's going to be a lot of shouting. And it's going to take a lot of years. Many, many, many. Yeah. The, uh, he referenced there's a loss and damage fund. We'll get to that in a bit because yes. that was also, in fact, I think some certainly good news. Yes. The um, UAE's COP28 president, Sultan Al-Jaber, who also just happens to be the CEO of a fossil fuel company. Yes, the guy who was running the climate conference also runs a fossil fuel company. He described the agreement as a, quote, paradigm shift we have delivered a paradigm shift that has the potential to redefine our economies we have confronted realities and we have set the world in the right direction we have given it a robust action plan to keep 1.5 within reach We must take the steps necessary to turn this agreement into tangible actions. So uh, what he is referring to with the the fight to keep 1.5 within reach, that is the uh, fighting to prevent the 1.5 degree Celsius raise in global temperatures over... Pre-industrial times? Yes. So in the Paris Agreement, there are two different targets. The two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels of warming is the sort of the the drop dead, got to make that one. The 1.5 degrees Celsius is called the aspirational target. But since it was first struck back in 2015 with the Paris Agreement, scientists have since had a lot more time to put together some data. And they say, you know, really, guys, we got to meet the 1.5 degree. We really got to do what we can to make it pass. Because after that, things really start to go haywire. Yeah, and the good news is uh, just a few weeks ago, the globe actually hit 1.5 degrees yes. uh, rise in temperatures. Temporarily. Uh, for, we'll see how temporary no, it is. No, it's definitely well, temporary. Okay. What, what the we'll definition see. is here is the trend line. So right. in order for it to be declared 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, it has to be there for 10 years or more. Okay. And if we're at that place, then we're in trouble. Yeah. We'll see how much trouble we're in. Yeah. Uh, and since we shared Al Gore's warning earlier in the week about what he described as COP28's potentially embarrassing Uh, Quote, embarrassing and dismal failure. That was based on the earlier draft agreement, which he categorized as wildly insufficient and, quote, deeply offensive to all who have taken this process seriously, unquote. He charged that, quote, this obsequious draft reads as if OPEC dictated it word for word. It is even worse than many had feared. So he was pretty clear he didn't care for the draft. Yes, Uh, but there is some new reporting on Mm -hmm. that from Reuters, by the way. They talked to some sources who said that uh, Jaber actually deliberately issued provocative texts like that in order to force the negotiators to reveal what their outer bounds of their positions were. It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, you get everybody to speak up and say, yeah, I agree with that and we should definitely do that or... 
like Saudi Arabia coming out and having to say in public, no, we want to stop that. Uh, oh, well, they're heroes, aren't they? Well, no, not so, heroes, but it forced everybody to say what they're what they were willing to negotiate on. So. Well, uh, given that uh, Gore said that about the original draft, whether it was a scheme or not. Uh, I also wanted to share what Gore's remarks were after the uh, nations had come to their final agreement for this year's conference uh, for what they are worth. Quote, uh, the decision at COP28 to finally recognize that the climate crisis is at its heart a fossil fuel crisis is an important milestone. But it is also the bare minimum we need and is long overdue. Al Gore said the influence of petrostates is still evident in the half measures and loopholes included in the final agreement. Fossil fuel interests went all out to control the outcome, but the passionate work of millions of climate activists around the world inspired and motivated delegates from many nations to loosen the industry's grip. Whether this is a turning point that truly marks the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel era depends on the actions that come next and the mobilization of finance required to achieve them. Gore added, we must ask ourselves how much longer will the world have to wait before all nations summon the political will to overcome these narrow special interests and act on behalf of the future of humanity. It is up to all of us to hold our leaders accountable to their promise to transition away from fossil fuels once and for all. That was Al Gore. Now, as to that uh, funding he mentions and the petrostates, Desi Doyen, there was some, some good news on that front at this conference regarding the so-called long-sought loss and damages fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the so-called Green Climate Fund, what are, what are those two different funds and, and what's the difference between the two? Okay, so the Loss and Damage Fund, that is for rich countries to help developing countries pay for the costs of damages. Literally, the losses and damages that they're already facing right now from, you know, excessive floods mm-hmm. and rainstorms and sea level rise and all manner of extreme weather disasters and drought, for example, as well. So those those cost money mm-hmm. and those are huge economic hits, especially for somebody like, say, Pakistan that had those catastrophic record floods mm-hmm. that they really still have not recovered from more than a year later. So that's the kind of thing that the loss and damage fund would go to. And it's taken 30 years to get there because rich countries didn't want to admit that, hey, they might be liable for damages, which they uh, have a reasonable fear of being taken to the International Criminal Court for reparations. Mm. So it was really hard to get the loss and damage fund in place, whereas the Green Climate Fund... But they finally got it in place. Yes, they finally got it in place. 30 years. So, I mean, this stuff moves at... Well, a glacial pace. It does, and that's and that's because of the. It it, it just proves, I think, the power yeah. of rich countries and of the oil industry to lobby to stop action. So this was a big, a big thing to overcome and actually get operational because they agreed to do it only last year. So. The Green Climate Fund yeah. is a different thing. That is in order to help developing countries 
develop the capacity to move to clean energy, renewable energy, and ditch fossil fuels, and to have some funds for adaptation for the impacts that are hitting them right now, like to build new roads, new bridges, water systems, flood controls, stuff like that. So they're different. One is for damage. The other is to build for the future. That's the Green Climate Fund. And on the damages, I think the U.S. committed to, it's it's great that we got it, we're beginning to fund it, but I think the U.S. committed to $17 million? Yes, an embarrassing, just really pathetic Pathetic. thing. But I think that that was because all of these uh, pledges that the United States are putting forward have to go through Congress, and they have to pass Republicans right now. So, you know, as long as Republicans hold power in Congress, these funding pledges that the United States is making are going to be very difficult to reach. And I've got uh, some news on that as well. On the other hand, the Green Climate Fund... Uh, Kamala Harris actually showed up at the conference and pledged $3 billion uh, to that fund. That's an easier one to get past Republicans in Congress than reparations. We will see, as I said in a moment. That's the idea. You mentioned uh, to me earlier that uh, petro-state Saudi Arabia had had, uh, reportedly begun a scheme to game that green climate fund. Can you explain that uh, very quickly? Yes. So so in the agreement that was agreed at COP28, it does con- include some major concessions for oil producers that, uh, you know, it gives fossil fuel producing countries lots of other options to continue polluting. Um, one of those things is uh, recognizing And this was something that the oil industry, the oil producing countries like Saudi Arabia and OPEC and Iran really pushed for was to have a provision that said that 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 recognized the role of, quote, transitional fuels, which didn't wasn't specified, but is widely thought to mean natural gas, Uh which is, you know, methane gas. And so what. So that's a transitional fuel. Yeah, they're calling it a transitional fuel. They call it. In order to be able to uh, continue to sell natural gas to develop. Despite the fact that it uh, puts out methane, which is wildly dangerous, just like carbon. Yep. does displace coal. Now, yeah. okay. so what happened is that uh-huh. now Brit- Britain's Channel 4 had obtained some detailed documents from Saudi Arabia that showed Saudi Arabia's plan to keep demand for oil high mm-hmm. for decades to come mm-hmm. by talking to developing countries and offering them little bennies like, hey, we're going to build you some natural gas infrastructure. Mm-hmm. We'll build it for you and then you just keep buying it from us for decades. Sure, it's a transition fuel, but this will hold you over until you can get somebody to give you money for clean energy. Of course. They're gaming the system. Transition fuel. Right. And so that was a concession to get this thing passed. How 2008 of them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And one more point on that. Green Climate Fund. We we also have this today from uh, Reuters. Donald Trump, the front runner for the Republican presidential nomination, said on Wednesday that if elected, he would renege on a $3 billion U.S. pledge to a global fund meant to help developing countries cut emissions and adapt to climate change. The pledge was announced by Vice President Kamala Harris this month in Dubai at the U.N. uh, COP Climate Summit. Trump, who has made attacking the administration of Joe Biden's, uh, President Joe Biden's investments in renewable energy, a core part of his campaign message, said he was opposed to what he called climate reparations, to other countries. Quote, when I am back in office, all climate reparation payments will be canceled immediately. 
since you happen to say that it'll be easier to get through a Republican <laughs> Congress. We'll see. Uh, well, he obviously, said that, I think it goes without saying that you have to have a Democrat in the White House, not a Republican, since all Republicans are basically climate deniers or climate delayers. Trump said at a campaign event uh, in Coralville, Iowa, he added that he would seek to, quote, claw back any payments made by the Biden administration. Now, at this point, Trump is just undermining not only U.S. policy, but frankly, endangering the world. Back in 2016, you'll recall, he had promised to tear up the anti-nuclear agreement that was uh, struck with Iran and about five other countries. And he did that. So, yes, we no longer have eyes anymore on Iranian nuclear development. And so they are you know, very likely working toward creating a nuclear bomb, for all we know. I don't know if they are, but who could blame them, frankly? And we can no longer watch to make sure they don't. And Trump also vowed to drop out of the Paris Climate Agreement, struck during the 2015 COP talks in Paris. Now, thankfully, the Biden-Harris administration immediately reinstated our commitment to the Paris Agreement when they upon taking office. But if the U.S. has to sort of encourage the rest of the world here to do the right thing, to put money into these funds and to begin reducing emissions and, and you know, paying into the climate funds. But the leading Republican candidate for president is saying, oh, he's going to take back any or all of that money. I mean, what does that say to the rest of the world who are considering paying into this fund? Frankly, the U.S. cannot be trusted anymore, which, you know, at least until Donald Trump, that that notion was sort of unthinkable when it came to international agreements, no matter which party controlled either Congress or the White House. So, uh, yeah, that's bad. Uh, Now, by the way, uh, next year, so all of this sort of, uh, we'll see how this goes next year. Is it in another Arab petrostate country, Desi Doyen? It's going the to be held. COP 29? COP 29 will be held in Azerbaijan, which um, <laughs> now the, the reason why this happens is because it was originally set up this way in order to have it rotate to different regions so that different regions of the world could highlight what they're dealing with. Azerbaijan. So, Azerbaijan, uh, it's, you know, it's kind of that region's net turn next. And uh, there was a big fight over who was going to get to host it. Russia basically blocked everybody. And so there is some concern. They agreed to Azerbaijan, which means that they plan to exert quite a bit of influence over what the COP29 will be. So, Oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. It is just uh, the way it is. Now, I do want to say just finally, though, that you know, I know that this all seems really, really incremental, and it absolutely is, but the theory of action here for these uh, COP28 is to get the words transition away from fossil fuels onto paper, because then you can ratchet up from there. If you don't get them on paper, it's really hard to enforce any of these targets. That's and it's it. hard even if it is on paper, Exactly, frankly. but so, this, this is a little bit further along the path, which I think is really helpful. Now, Donald Trump also lied to his supporters on Wednesday at his—I know you'll be shocked. Sit <laughs> to, hope, hopefully you're sitting down. He, yes, he lied to his supporters again at that, uh, at that event in Iowa uh, when he said this. Gasoline prices are now 5 6 $7, and even $8 a gallon. By contrast— 
Under the Trump leadership, by leadership, inflation was non-existent, and we had gasoline down to a dollar eighty-seven a gallon. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. In fact, for the record, when he had gasoline down to a beautiful dollar eighty-seven a gallon, people were dying left and right. It was in the depth of the uh, worst pandemic in a century, which he wildly mishandled, helping to kill almost a million Americans, and it also kept people at home. So nobody was using gas. So yes, the price uh, across the globe for, uh, for oil and gas plummeted. Even, by the way, as Trump was trying to encourage companies to raise their prices on gas at that time, I suspect a lot of people don't remember that, but he was complaining that the price of gas was too low. As to gas Costing now, as he says, now five, six, seven, and even eight dollars a gallon. Well, that is an outrageous and blatant lie. Take it from someone who lives in California, where we have the highest gas prices in the nation. No, they are not eight dollars a gallon. In fact, according to AAA, as of Thursday morning, the day after his lies in uh, in Iowa, the average price of a gallon of gas nationally was $3.10 a gallon. The low range was about $2.50 a gallon. The high range was $4.70, but not 5 or 6 or 7 or even $8 a gallon. Trump chose to make that new claim at a time when gas prices have frankly tumbled to their lowest in nearly a year, uh, according to the New York Times. And we mentioned that in just the past two months, They've fallen 11% over October and November. 60% of gas stations, the time notes, are pumping at below $3 a gallon. Below. Other than that, sure, $8 a gallon. (laughs) So the price, by the way, is now pretty much what it was before Trump helped kill nearly a million Americans by lying about the pandemic. But, of course, Trump knows that his supporters are suckers and dupes and will believe anything that he says, so... Anyway, I thought you at least should know the facts. I've already spent way too much time on that jerk today, so let me just speed through a few quick Trump accountability items today. Uh, We're all sort of waiting to see how things are going to play out at the D.C. Court of Appeals and the uh, U.S. Supreme Court regarding Special Counsel Jack Smith's motions at both courts for expedited hearings on Trump's appeal to Judge Tanya Chutkin's ruling in his attempted election theft trial in federal court, currently set to begin on March 4, but likely delayed because of these appeals, uh, which are Trump's only real strategy. He's not saying he's innocent. He's saying, hey, let's delay it. uh, Tanya Chutkin, in fact, uh, determined no, a president does not have immunity from crimes that that he carried out while in office. And that's what Trump is now appealing at both the Supreme Court and the D.C. Court of Appeals. So, uh, but uh, we had uh, some kind of remarkable news, really, on Wednesday, as longtime Brad Blog legal analyst Ernie Canning emailed me after the uh, show yesterday. He noted uh, subject line, lightning speed at D.C. Court of Appeal. Hi, Brad. Talk about swift appellate action. Jack Smith filed his motion to expedite a hearing in the D.C. Court of Appeal on Monday, 
The court gave Donald Trump to Wednesday morning to respond and gave Jack Smith until Thursday to respond, but Smith did not wait until Thursday. He replied almost immediately on Wednesday after Trump had uh, filed their, uh, their response. And then the court did not wait for any reply either. The court issued their ruling again almost immediately on Wednesday. They replied with a two-page uh, two order, really, with just a few lines of text, most notably reading, Upon consideration of the motion to expedite case, the opposition thereto, and the reply, it is ordered that this appeal be expedited. Well, that was simple. <laughs> the uh, appellate court went on to set a briefing schedule, a really fast one here. Trump's lawyers have to file their brief by next Saturday, December 23. Jack Smith's brief must then be follow, uh, filed by December 30, and a reply brief must be followed by January 2. And the debate for the oral arguments will, will then be determined, but I suspect it's going to be very quick based on the actions taken by the three-judge panel on the D.C. Court of Appeals this week. The three judges, by the way, who will determine if Trump, as he argues, has absolute immunity while serving as president to commit any and all crimes that he likes. Those three judges will be two Biden-appointed judges and one uh, George Bush senior-appointed judge. And I would say that this that's all very good news regarding the likelihood of a trial next year staying somewhat on track before both the election in November and maybe even the Republican convention in August. But I do wonder if the lightning speed of the appeals court here is going to sort of lead the Supreme Court where Jack Smith is trying to leapfrog to lead the uh, Supreme Court to say, well, you know what? The appeals court, they're going so fast. Let's let them go first and and we'll pick it up when they're done. But uh, so we'll see. In other Trump related immunity news, Good news. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals handed Donald Trump another loss on Wednesday on that same issue in a test of his presidential immunity claims arising out of one of E. Jean Carroll's civil defamation claims against him. And in New York State, testimony is wrapped up in Trump's $250, $250, (laughs) he wishes, $250 million civil fraud trial against him and his companies and his top executives, including his two eldest sons, in which the judge has already found all of them guilty. And the trial focused only on what the penalties will be. They are likely to be in the hundreds of millions of dollars and include putting the Trumps out of business in New York State forever with the uh, dissolution of his companies and the likely sale of many, if not all, of his assets built on billions of dollars of fraudulent claims over decades. Uh, In other related fraud and defamation news, and this one really, frankly, makes my blood boil, to be frank, Uh, not only because of the disgusting, blatant, terrifying racism involved. But because this was an attack on election workers, which I really kind of take personally for some reason. (laughs) And not just any election workers, but election workers who volunteered to work to make sure our 
Democratic elections could move ahead in the middle of the worst pandemic in 100 years. When many, many people were afraid to even leave their homes, much less congregate for hours among a whole bunch of people to make sure we could have a Democratic election. So uh, Shea Moss, she had been a longtime election worker in Fulton County, Georgia. She loved her job there. And when Fulton needed more people to help out during the pandemic because they had lost a lot of workers and they needed more people to help out during the pandemic to count ballots, well, Shea Moss drafted her own mother, Ruby Freeman, to help out. And both of them were then falsely and repeatedly identified by name by Rudy Giuliani and by the President of the United States himself as falsifying ballots during tabulation in Atlanta when they did no such thing. These were out-and-out lies. They were quickly disproven, but that did not matter. Both of them, Rudy and Trump, repeated the claims over and over and over again, and they made their lives Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, a living, a terrifying living hell. Sending people to threaten them, posting Ruby Freeman's address, her home address, to the point that she had to hide under a table as she called 911 with Trump and Giuliani's goons banging on her door to be let into her house in Atlanta in December of 2020. I've been having terroristic threats. I've been having harassing phone calls and emails, and they came out and made a police report um, yesterday. Last night, about 10 minutes after 9, somebody was banging on the door, and now somebody's banging on the door again. Oh, they screaming. He's still banging on the door. Okay. They are on the way, man. Terrifying. This elderly woman at home alone. They're banging on the doors to come into her house. Now you may remember Ruby Freeman from some of her testimony to the uh, House January 6th committee back in 2022. There is nowhere I feel safe. Nowhere. Do you know how it feels to have the president of the United States to target you? The president of the United States is supposed to represent every American, not to target one. But he targeted me, Lady Ruby, a small business owner, a mother, a proud American citizen who stand up to help Fulton County run an election in the middle of the pandemic. Well, on uh, on Wednesday, yes, it, it makes my blood boil on Wednesday on the witness stand in federal court in the defamation damages trial against Disgraced sleazeball Rudy Giuliani, Ruby Freeman said that she was already reeling from a campaign of violent and racist threats against her three uh, against her three years ago when Donald Trump decided to make her an even bigger target. She described how uh, Giuliani 
falsely accused her of manipulating ballots in the 2020 election, a smear campaign that prompted a torrent of threatening messages and upended her life. But when Trump took those false claims and echoed them in an infamous phone call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, the threats became even more pernicious, she said. As Politico's Kyle Cheney, reporting from the courtroom on Wednesday, uh, noted, Freeman said on the stand, quote, I just felt like, really? This is the former president talking about me? Me? How mean? How evil? I was just devastated, she recalled, fighting back tears as she recounted the episode. I didn't do nothing. It just made me feel, you don't care that I'm a real person. He didn't know what he was talking about, she continued, refusing to use Trump's name. He had no clue what he was talking about. He was just trying to put a name to somebody stealing ballots, which which was a total lie. Trump mentioned Freeman, in fact, 18 times by name on that infamous January 2, 2021 call with uh, Brad Raffensperger trying to muscle him into stealing Georgia's election for him. An audio recording of that call was published in the media the next day. As the claims spread among Trump's followers, even as Georgia election officials sought to debunk them, Freeman said the threats to her became more acute. People were began showing up at her home, sending threatening voicemails and letters, bombarding her social media accounts with violent and racist vitriol. She said she left her she had to leave her longtime home on advice of the FBI after learning that her name had appeared on a quote death list kept by someone who had just been arrested. She was often choking up, sobbing on the stand. Uh, She recounted the barrage of threats she received. Quote, you are dead. Your family and you are now criminals and traitors to the union. BLM, Black Lives Matter, wants the cops to go away. Good, they are in the way of my ropes and your tree. Kill yourself now so we can save ammo, read one message. Quote, I hope the federal government hangs you and your daughter from the Capitol Dome, you treasonous piece of blank, read another. I pray that I will be sitting close enough to hear your next snap. Quote, you better get on the phone with Uncle Rudy Giuliani and cut a deal. It might keep you out of the big house, one anonymous sender wrote. Many of the messages, letters, and calls included flagrantly racist tropes, insults, and threats. One sender's email address included the letters KKK. Freeman says she received hundreds of these. I felt like I was terrorized. I was scared, she said on the stand. The phone just kept ringing and ringing. Freeman said she now wears a mask and sunglasses outside of her new home, which has been fitted with security cameras and alarms. Quote, my life is just messed up. It's really messed up because somebody put me on blast. Just tweet my name out to their millions of followers, she declared. Spent about 90 minutes on the witness stand on Wednesday before Giuliani's attorney, Joseph Sibley, had a chance to cross-examine her. He chose to pass that up. Probably smart. Simply telling Freeman, who's uh, been at the trial all week, that it was nice to, quote, finally have the chance to meet her. As he left court on Wednesday, Giuliani said he intended to take the stand on Thursday. 
He didn't. Like Trump, in his own trial on damages now ramping up uh, in, in the fraud allegations in New York, just like Trump, uh, Giuliani was lying about that. He didn't take the stand. Even though after the first day of court earlier in the week, he went out and said he stood by everything he said. He stood by the fact that these two women were falsifying ballots and were stealing the election in 2020. U.S. District Judge Beryl Howell, who's overseeing the case, has already ruled that Giuliani is liable for defamation. Before the trial, after finding that Giuliani defied the court's demands for evidence related to the case, Howell ruled that Giuliani was legally responsible for defaming both Freeman and her daughter, Shay Moss, leaving the only issue for the jury to determine the amount of damages that he must pay, uh, must pay them. Get that Giuliani, who was a, a U.S. attorney in uh, in New York, in the Southern District of New York, a federal prosecutor, defied demands to turn over evidence. Freeman and Moss are seeking up to $40 million from Giuliani for defamation and emotional distress. They would deserve every penny of it. In addition, uh, there will be uh, potentially punitive damages, which could cost millions more to Rudy Giuliani. As Kyle Cheney reported from the courtroom on Twitter today, Joseph Sibley, that's Rudy's own attorney, repeatedly criticized Giuliani in his closing statements, comparing him to flat earthers who will never stop believing election lies, saying that he committed an injustice against Moss and Freeman, but noting that he's almost 80 years old and arguing, well, Rudy Giuliani shouldn't be defined by what's happened in recent times. Sibley recalled uh, Rudy as a unifying figure around 9-11, and he wants the jury to remember him that way instead of this way, his own attorney. Cheney reports, uh, quoting Sibley, as saying, quote, This is a man who did great things. If he hasn't been so great lately, I want you to judge him by the entire character of who he is, as he urged the jury to have sympathy. Well, I got to tell you, glad I'm not on that jury because I have no sympathy for Rudy Giuliani. And I have less than none for him, by the way, after reading the horrific sexual allegations sexual abuse allegations made against him in a uh, recent lawsuit from one of his own longtime aides. It is disgusting. I recommend you do not read that lawsuit, but I did. During opening statements in this uh, defamation trial, Giuliani's attorney, Sibley, argued that a $40 million verdict would be the civil version of a death sentence for Giuliani and that it would, quote, be the end for him. Well, let's hope so. Jurors begin deliberating in the case on Thursday. I will look forward to their verdict. I hope it is brutal. Okay, quick break, and we will come back with uh, with a correction. A correction, Desi Doyen, okay. via uh, listener mail. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman.
The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Message to you, Rudy. A message to you. You're growing older each day. Yeah, yes. You want to think of your future. What future? Or you might wind up in jail. Oh, I hope so. Then you will suffer. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Was I too mean to Rudy Giuliani there, Desi Doyen? I think we'll find out because he really did some really bad things to uh, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. I mean, he did destroy their lives, so. Yes. And that's not all he's done. But anyway, all right, moving on. A correction. Thanks to uh, some listener mail, uh, some listener email from the Netherlands. While uh, reporting earlier this week on the, uh, quote, political earthquake win in the Netherlands for the centrist party of, of, uh, of Poland's uh, now prime minister Donald Tusk on Monday, which happily replaced the far-right authoritarian party there that had controlled parliament in Poland for the last eight dark years there. They changed their mind about that after having a front row seat to uh, uh, Vladimir Putin marching into Ukraine. But while covering that story, I mentioned the good news on Monday in contrast to some recent wins that we have seen, some recent electoral wins for authoritarians around the globe in recent months. Hopefully not a harbinger for next year in this country. But I cited, among others, What I had too quickly described uh, as the, quote, surprise majority win for the far right party of anti-immigrant extremist Geert Wilders in the Netherlands late last month. I had covered the shocking win by Wilders party when I initially reported on it last month. But this week I was sort of imprecise. In fact, I was inaccurate in my uh, quick reference to it earlier this week as a listener from Amsterdam in the Netherlands emailed me via bradcast at bradblog.com to let me know. Dear Mr. Friedman, very polite over there in the Netherlands, are they? Mm-hmm. Please call me Brad. Uh, contrary to what you and many other international media are stating, Mr. Wilders' Party for Freedom, known as PVV, did not win a majority in the Dutch parliament last month. Let me explain. In the uh, Netherlands, we have a system of proportional representation. In practice, this means no party ever wins an overall majority of the votes and or seats in parliament. It also means a lot lot of different parties are represented in parliament. All good. A uh, new government then needs to have the support of at least half of the members of parliament in order to function. Negotiations... David says, are now underway to form a governing coalition between PVV and the other parties that would comprise a majority of seats, and he notes it may take a long time. The PVV of Geert Wilders 
did win the largest number of seats, roughly a quarter, which is bad enough. But as uh, David notes, his uh, his party, uh, Geert Wilder's party, did not win a majority of seats, as I had uh, indicated. And uh, now, as I did correctly note the other day, the other parties uh, in Parliament seem reluctant to form a coalition with the PVV because of their extreme policy positions. Regards uh, from David in Amsterdam. Thank you, David. Regards to you as well. Amsterdam, by the way, one of my favorite cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, thank you for clearing that up. Uh, and as I said, I think I did report it correctly uh, when Wilder's party won the largest number of seats last month, but I I was too quick, too hasty in yes. my uh, recap of it earlier this week. And I really appreciate the explanation of parliaments, you know, and how yeah, those how they work. Because we know. don't get it I'm here so in the U.S. I'm so sorry to everybody else in the world that, you know, we don't get really get taught this stuff in the U.S. Proportional representation? What is what that? What a concept. Never heard yeah. of that. I what? mean, it makes a lot of sense. So, you yeah. know, do forgive us and thank you for explaining it. And uh, I also appreciated David's P.S. He added, I volunteered as a poll worker at a polling station in Amsterdam. He notes we use 100% hand-marked, hand-counted ballots. What? He says very large ones because of the many different parties and candidates. We used to have voting machines, but they were exposed to be unsafe by a group (laughs) of hackers years ago, and they were banned. And I remember that very well. I've cited it many times over the years that, oh, in, uh, in the Netherlands, and I think they had just gotten the machines. They had just spent millions of dollars on these machines. It was within a year, as I'm remembering it, uh, the hackers said, no, these can easily be hacked. Here, and, let's show you. Yeah, and they got rid of them. Imagine if in this country we discovered a problem, we took actions to fix it, and it went away. Instead of, you know, going on, what am I 20 years now complaining about these goddamn machines that we are still using that are still unverifiable and are still hackable. And yet, how is it that the Netherlands is able to do hand-marked, hand-counted paper ballots without the universe collapsing? Because they are normal human beings and they're able to pull it off. Now, that's sad. They can count. Yeah, they can count, but they're only counting essentially one race. That's true. So, they're not as complicated as uh, We don't have the ours, long but... ballots that we have here, but... Shows it's not impossible. Uh, but it is not impossible, and uh, you know maybe this is the sort of thing that comes from proportional representation when everyone has to sort of work together to get things done. Solutions, what? Now, you might say that, but on the other hand, the party that just won the most seats in uh, Parliament is a far, far right uh, <laughs> anti-Islam uh, party. Then again... The party that controls the majority in the U.S. House right now is also a far, far right authoritarian anti-immigration party. So uh, I guess you can find them everywhere. All right. Anyway, thank you again, David from Amsterdam. And thank you for volunteering as a poll worker. Yes. And thank you for the correction. Quick break. And we are back with the Green News Report straight ahead on the broadcast. I am Mr. Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, 
do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Okay, we're short on time because we spent so much time talking about green news at the top of the show. <laughs> yes. So let's finish today's uh, show with some more green news in our latest green news report. We have delivered a paradigm shift that has the potential to redefine our economies. At COP28 climate talks, nations strike historic agreement to transition away from fossil fuels. Plus, there's a saying that what happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic. Dramatic changes underway at the top of the world thanks to climate change. Thanks, climate change. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. If I become president, we would certainly not get back into the Paris Climate Agreement. And that's why the fossil fueled Coke Network loves you, Nikki Haley. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, we didn't know if it would happen. We didn't know if they'd be able to strike an agreement, but they finally have at the United Nations Climate Summit in Dubai. Yep, but first, more news. A bracing backdrop to the UN Climate Summit, the new Arctic Report Card, published by NOAA scientists this week, confirms that the Arctic is warming roughly four times faster than the rest of the planet due to human-caused climate change caused by burning fossil fuels. This past summer was the warmest in the Arctic since at least 1900, in turn increasing sea level rise, all Altering global weather patterns and wildlife migration and intensifying disasters across the region, like flooding in Alaska and the record wildfire season in Canada. The scientists warn the Arctic is an early indicator of what the rest of the globe can expect as the planet warms. Now, you say since 1900. Is that because that's as far back as the records go or was it this warm back in 1900? That's as far back as the records go. That's what I thought. But the really big news, at COP28, the U.N. Climate Summit negotiations held this year in Dubai, governments of the world agreed for the first time to explicitly transition away from fossil fuels, the primary driver of global warming. Well, that ain't nothing. After nearly 30 years of international climate negotiations, in the closing weeks of the hottest year ever recorded, it really is the first time that ditching coal oil and fossil gas has been codified in international climate negotiations. And the first time they even mention the word fossil fuels? Yes. Known as the first global stock take, the text only calls to end the use of fossil fuels in energy production, not industrial processes, and is not the phase down or phase out of fossil fuels urged by scientists and a majority of countries. Instead, it offers several options, including transitioning away from fossil fuels to achieve net zero by 2050. It includes provisions that critics say give the fossil fuel industry numerous options to continue polluting, such as relying on unproven technologies like carbon capture and storage. Options, like a menu. 
The deal in Dubai does include concrete commitments to triple renewable energy globally, double energy efficiency, slash emissions of powerful climate warming methane, and accelerate efforts to phase down coal power with targets to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 43 percent by 2030. COP28 President Sultan Al-Jaber, himself an oil industry CEO, said the deal's success will be in implementation. We must take the steps necessary to turn this agreement into tangible actions. Delegates from the Alliance of Small Island States, which are countries that have contributed little to global warming but are grappling with rising seas and devastating storms, criticized the deal as weak with, quote, a litany of loopholes that does not cut greenhouse gas emissions fast enough to limit global heating to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Oh, yeah, we're blowing past that target. And it doesn't go nearly far enough to address the costs of global warming to developing nations. COP28 did achieve a decades-long goal of operationalizing a loss and damage fund for industrialized countries to provide funding to developing nations struggling with climate disasters, but there is not a requirement for richer countries to help poorer ones with the upfront cost of transitioning their economies to clean energy. The COP28 text lays the groundwork for next year's negotiations when countries are due to ratchet up their commitments for cutting greenhouse gas emissions. United Nations Climate Secretary Simon Steele called the mixed results a turning point that is both historic and insufficient. This agreement is an ambitious floor, not a ceiling. So the crucial years ahead must keep ramping up ambition and climate action. Steele said the agreement sends a powerful signal to policymakers, business and investors that the world is united in the goal to break away from fossil fuels. Meh, sort of. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. I think we all feel fine, right? Yeah. Everything is fine. Why worry? Uh, thank you very much, Desi Doyan, our producer, and for, I think, 20 years running, Employee of the Year. Congratulations again this year. <laughs> Uh, thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. That is available to all, no paywall. Thanks to those of you kind enough to help us stay on your public airwaves to report stuff that, uh, boy, you know, uh, if we tried to do anywhere else, they would throw us right off. <laughs> Just ask, ask ExxonMobil. Anyway, uh, drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Mastodons, and site still known as Twitter, you will find me at the Brad Blog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>